Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another installment of the Double Down, a WNBA podcast. I'm Eric Nemchuk, alongside my co-host, Stephen Trinkwald. And Stephen, we are diversifying our content a little bit today. We are talking about the 2009 WNBA Finals Game 1 between the Indiana Fever and the Phoenix Mercury. Yeah, this is kind of the uh, first installment of this type of show, and I'm, I'm really excited to do it. Yeah, as am I. You know, both Stephen and I, uh, we weren't really WNBA fans when this game occurred. I started watching the league like a year or two later. So it was interesting to, to go back and, and see how kind of there. I mean, we had there were a lot of familiar players in this game, obviously. But it was also interesting to see how the game was played back in 2009, what differences there were from today, what kind of similarities there are as well. So we're going to kind of touch on that. Stephen, where do you want to start with this? I think the best place to start would maybe to provide some overall context, just in terms of like where these teams were, where these players were in the league. So the Fever, they were the best defense in the league this year. This was their third season in four years where they had the number one defense and they would the following season as well. So they were really a defensive powerhouse of this era. Conversely, Phoenix had the best offense in the league, their fourth consecutive uh, out of six total seasons in a row, being the best offense in the WNBA. And Phoenix was also the worst defense in the league, perpetually among the worst defenses in the league during this run of theirs. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's funny you say perpetually because I think back in this era, the Mercury were known as a all offense, no defense sort of team you know one thing that I actually that stood out to me when I was doing some research on this uh, Mercury team is not only did they have the best offense in the league it wasn't even close they scored 109.2 points per 100 possessions relative to the mean they scored 9.3 points per 100 possessions more than mean and just to put that in perspective for fans who are maybe more familiar with today that was one of the best offensive performances in WNBA history until the 2019 Mystics posted a relative offensive rating of plus 15 which is like video game numbers but yeah you know this is this game was a classic match of offensive team versus defensive team but right away Stephen looking at the score you can kind of tell which which mentality prevailed yeah that's right this is a high scoring one and you know going into this matchup these were the two one seeds in their respective conferences uh this was Diana Taurasi's uh, MVP season she led the league in scoring and posted an absurd uh, 620 true shooting percentage. On the other end, this was Tamika Catchings. She won her third of her five Defensive Player of the Year awards this year. This matchup also featured four all WNBA players. Tarasi, Pondexter, and Catchings were all first team all WNBA, and Katie Douglas made the second team as well. And the season before this, Phoenix had become the first defending champion to miss the playoffs uh, after uh, winning it all in 2007. Penny Taylor, of course, skipped the 2008 season to prepare for the Olympics, entered this season injured as well after having some ankle surgery, uh, would only play 14 regular season games this year and, and come off the bench primarily. But of course, she had a much larger role than that, uh, was fifth on the team in total playoff minutes and, and had a huge game here, as we'll get to. This was also Dewana Bonner and Brian January's rookie seasons, both players that featured prominently in this matchup, the fifth and sixth players in the draft, respectively. Uh, this was Dewana Bunner's, of course, first of three consecutive Six Women of the Year awards to start her career. And this was Cappy Pondexter's final season in Phoenix before uh, requesting a trade that brought her to New York and brought Candace Dupree to Phoenix. Yeah, there are a lot of what ifs that popped up in my head when I watched Cappy Pondexter play on this Phoenix squad. I mean, just the amount of talent looking up and down this lineup, it's it's really something else. Uh, but as you touched upon, this is also back when conferences actually mattered. 
right? You know, a few seasons ago, the WNBA switched up their playoff format where it was just seating, like normal seating. There were no conferences in seating. But yes, this was the best of the West against the best of the East. And is now a good time to maybe get into what you think about those changes? Yeah, I, I don't see why not. There were three differences back then, you know, back in the day in 2009 that I kind of wanted to touch upon before we really get into the, the X's and O's here. Uh, the first one would be that there was no defensive three seconds. That was a rule that was changed prior to the 2013 season. I think a lot of people <laughs> affectionately call it the Brittany Griner rule because uh, that was, of course, her rookie season. So no defensive three seconds. The shot clock reset to 24 seconds after an offensive rebound. That was changed in 2016 when they reset it to 14 seconds after an offensive rebound. And also the three-point line was considerably closer to the basket in 2009. Uh, it was about a foot and a half closer. That was a rule that was also changed in 2013. So with those rules, I mean, the, the game was different back then. I, no doubt about that. Would you say this is kind of, I mean, no defensive three seconds. That obviously helps the defense. How about this three-point line stuff? Would you, would you say that helps the offense or the defense when you come to easiness of three-point shots, but also the floor spacing isn't as you know, significant? That's a great question. I, I think I lean towards the closer three-point line helping the offense a little bit more, but you know, until you brought it up, I hadn't really considered the spacing on the other end where there's kind of less room where the defense has to close out. So that's a good question. You know, I think I might be kind of changing my mind as I talk about it a little bit more. I think individual players, maybe it helps having a closer line, but I think overall, maybe the, the longer three-point line does help the offense a little bit more. What do you think? Well, I mean, that's, I think you're right on, I think if, you're making a good point there as far as individual players are concerned, especially for someone like Tamika Catchings, who was maybe never really known as a, as an elite jump shooter, you know, for all her greatness, I, jump shooter is not, was, was not one of her strengths. And that may have uh, hampered her offensive game a little bit moving forward. You know, there was a point in this game, I think, where she, she, hit, a, she hit a three um, from the wing area that would have been a long two. And yeah, it was right on the line. Yeah, yeah. So, and also, I mean, but for all of the, this, this game featured the three-point shot very prominently. So I almost wonder like how that would have changed given today's three-point line. The Fever attempted 21 threes. The Mercury attempted 22 threes. Both were hit at a very high clip, which was part of the reason why the score was so high. But that is, it is a good question to think about because I, I feel like, you know, the offense as a whole benefits more these days from the three-point line being moved back because the floor is stretched out a little bit, a little bit more. But so many of these shots you know off the dribble or coming off screens or when, when the defense goes under screens rather it would have been three-point shots back then or would now be long two-pointers so yes I think it is like an individual basis but I would say it's better for the offense just because the floor opens up especially because you have the corner three-point shooters standing further back but as you were mentioning before you know it does kind of help in this matchup specifically I think it maybe helps you know, like a Tangela Smith who who led the league in three-point percentage this year. You know, she wasn't bombing away deep threes. She was kind of towing the line for a lot of her attempts. So I, I think it's a kind of a very situational thing. But overall, I think all three of the things that you touched on, the defensive three seconds, which I think, you know, in this matchup featured very prominently as well, the shot clock resetting to 24 instead of 14 as it does now, and the closer three-point line. I think all of those in today's game, I would consider improvements as to where they were in yesteryear. Absolutely. And especially one thing I want to touch upon before we kind of get into the game itself here regarding the 
uh, the shot clock resetting to 14 seconds. There were some end of regulation scenarios that were very crucial in this game in which an offensive rebound was grabbed and the team who grabbed it was able to kind of pull it back out and waste some more clock. With it resetting to 14 seconds, if that rule was in effect in 2009, this game could have gone a completely different way. So, but yes, I do believe it's good, especially for the whole pace of the game. Pace was definitely not a concern in this game, however. Would you like to kind of dive into how this game went? Oh, it was crazy. I mean, an incredibly fast-paced game. I think about 95 possessions or so for each team. I think ESPN had mentioned that it was the highest scoring first quarter in WNBA Finals history. The Fever broke a WNBA Finals record with 33 points in the third quarter. So yeah, it was, it was up and down. Phoenix likes to run on makes. Indiana was pressuring in the full court, which was really kind of speeding up Phoenix. And, you know, I didn't think that was particularly an effective strategy and really led to some advantage opportunities a lot, which maybe we can get to in a little bit. But I mean, yeah, it was lightning quick and it was a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, just looking at the statistics here, uh, Indiana shot 10 for 21 from three-point range. Phoenix shot 12 for 22 from three-point range. So both of those very good percentages. The score was in the 100s at the end of regulation. So, I mean, that, that really speaks to how well these teams are shooting and, of course, to the pace of the game as well. Now, of course, Phoenix, everyone knew at the start of the game, and, and they talked about this on the broadcast, Phoenix wants to get up and down. They want to run. They do not want to defend you, <laughs> to say the least. They played that 2-1-2 rover defense, as they called it. But in the game, you know, I, I feel like, generally speaking, throughout the majority of this game, or at least the beginning of the game, like the first half or first three quarters, there was no real winner or loser like this is a very back and forth type of game yeah and you mentioned that 2-1-2 rover defense and phoenix threw out a couple different looks over the course of the game i think they would really kind of start each half trying some man that you know would not go well they would not stick with it uh, for very long switch to kind of the the 2-1-2 they threw some 2-3 in there occasionally but really only for a couple possessions but the rover defense really allowed for and really, this probably would have happened no matter what defense they ran, but the rover defense and just kind of the, the personnel matchup really allowed for Indiana's bigs to really feast down low. You know, I had mentioned Tangela Smith earlier, and I think that she was a very valuable player offensively to this Phoenix group, you know, really contributed positively to this team's floor spacing. But the Indiana bigs just kind of had their way with, with Tangela Smith and Lacole Willingham. I think Indiana had, you know, 10 of its first 15 points were points in the paint or free throws just by their starting big combination of Ebony Hoffman and Tammy Sutton Brown. Hoffman had 27 points on 14 shooting possessions, just an insane game for Hoffman, like a career six point per game scorer. I know she was the 2008 most improved player, but really just balled out in this one was scoring down low, hit some mid-rangers, hit a couple threes, but they just had no answers down low for Hoffman and Sutton Brown had a pretty solid game offensively as well. 19 points on 19 shooting possessions, one point away from a, a career playoff high. Yeah, and, and Ebony Hoffman and Tammy Sutton Brown, neither of them got much rest, both played 38 minutes, which we're going to get we're going to get to the implications of that later because it was, it was pointed out on the broadcast, but you're right. This is a in my opinion the front court battle really embodied the differing mentality of these two teams. You know, you have Ebony Hoffman's Tammy Sutton Brown, who they played extremely well as a pairing. I thought they made a lot of high basketball IQ plays, picking apart this 2-1-2 rover defense. For the most part, I thought they were very patient. And you're right, Ebony Hoffman, I mean, 27 points on 12 or 14 shooting. That's that's pretty ridiculous. I think heading into this game, I just looked at the score before we watched it. I was like, oh, well, you know, catch must have totally balled out. But no, it was the front court of this Indiana Fever team that really did a number against Phoenix. Whereas on the other hand, you know, 
Angela Smith, she's looking back at her career. She, she seems like a prototypical stretch five. Again, I, I didn't really watch the league back when this game was being played and I'm not much of a historian, but I think that she was a player who benefit a lot in today's game, actually. You know, she's long. She can move her feet. She did record two steals and two blocks. She was up there as far as blocks per game go for the 2009 season. And she can she can hit that three-pointer. Of course, it wasn't – it seemed like her most of her shots came, like, at secondary offense. Like, for example, Cappy Pondexter would drive and draw, like, three defenders and then kick it back out. But those shots were coming early in the shot clock. So, obviously, Corey Gaines, who was the head coach of the Mercury at the time, trusted her to take those shots. And uh, personnel-wise, yeah, it was a very intriguing matchup. Want to get to the, the marquee matchup, Diana Trossi versus Tamika Catchings. Okay, so obviously that was, the, that was the matchup you want to see. Tamika Catchings did most of the defensive assignment on Diana Tarazi, who was coming off her MVP, or as Phoenix fans like to call it, MVD season. And this is a matchup that, boy, it was a tough one. I mean, you saw the best of both players. I don't really know who won it, to be honest with you. What would you say? Just in the individual matchup, I think Ketch did get the upper hand. You know, she only scored eight points on eight shooting positions. Not an amazing offensive game for her, but she really shadowed Tarasi well, made life tough for Diana Tarasi. The offense that Tarasi was able to get, uh, she had 22 points on 22 shooting possessions. It was largely her ability to get to the line, which she did effectively. Catchings, of course, was in foul trouble. But Tarasi also had five turnovers, uh, had to throw some pretty questionable passes. You know, it wasn't all Catchings that was kind of holding her in check. They were trapping a ton of Tarasi pick and rolls and just forcing the ball out of her hand and kind of letting everybody else beat them. Catching's not an amazing scoring net, as I said, but I think this was about as good of a game as you can get from your franchise player without really getting big points. You know, she had two steals, two blocks. She had a, a charge or two drawn, five assists, six rebounds. And like I said, she, I thought she played really well on Diana Tarasi. And, and most of what Tarasi was able to do from the field was when she was able to get some separation in the pick and roll. She, she had some transition opportunities as well. And as was a theme in this game, when Tarasi or any of the other Mercury perimeter players got an opportunity to play pick and roll and, and get downhill against Indiana's bigs, you know, that's where they had most success, in my opinion. Most success, uh, a lot of it coming at the free throw line. I mean, Phoenix shot 38 free throws. Indiana shot only 19. When you have a game that goes into overtime, I think that's a very significant statistic. But yeah, I mean, going back to catchings, it really speaks to her greatness, how she was a player who could be in foul trouble the entire time, only make two shots, but still impact the game so greatly. And then Diana Shirazi, I mean, you had the, the pull-up threes in transition. I got to say, as somebody who's used to watching her just bomb all these three-pointers. It was, it was kind of funny to see her take so many two-point jumpers. Um, she clearly wasn't in the Tarazi rhythm that we're so used to seeing her in. But, I mean, you're right. There's, there, it's never a one-woman show when you're guarding Diana Tarazi. Like, there's so, much, there's so much of what she does both on and off the ball. you got to focus so much attention on her. And then looking at how the rest of this Mercury roster is constructed, it's not done when you get the ball out of Diana Taurasi's hands because then you have a prime Campy Pine next year as well. Yeah, and I think a lot of it was matchup dependent, but it was, I guess, a little surprising how little of the offense really flowed through Diana Taurasi. Not to say that she wasn't involved because she definitely was, but you know, a lot of the kind of playmaking responsibility fell more on the shoulders of Cappy Pondexter and in particular Penny Taylor. Can we talk about Penny Taylor for a second? Because she had a heck of a game. Oh my God. It, this was incredible. Yeah. I mean, Penny Taylor, like when I was first getting into WNBA, Penny Taylor was one of my first favorite players. 
She's just so efficient and so versatile. In this game, the box score speaks for itself. Like, again, it was a game that went into overtime, and it was never really controlled by any one team. But Penny Taylor was plus 25. Her box, score, her box plus minus was plus 25 in 27 minutes. She scored 23 points on 7 of 10 shooting from the field. Indiana had no answer for her off the dribble or from behind three-point line. This was Penny Taylor at her finest. Yeah, as I mentioned before, she came into the season injured, came off the bench for the majority of the season, including this game, checks in for the first time at 240 remaining in the first quarter. Phoenix is down 10, and right away you can just see how things open up for this Phoenix offense with Penny Taylor on the floor. Dewana Bonner, you know, right away sets a pin down for Penny Taylor coming across the right side. Indiana overcommits, and Bonner just gets a wide-open layup. So continuing in the first quarter, Tarasi sits down with about a minute 40 seconds remaining in the first. Uh, after catchings picks up her second fall of the first quarter, but but does stay in the game. Phoenix is still down 10 at this point, 29-19. The lineup, I think, is uh, Penny, Cappy, Swanye, Dewana Bonner, and Oldie. And Phoenix was on a 12-2 run, almost entirely fueled by Penny Taylor. She scores eight points in the first quarter in those like two minutes and 40 seconds, three of four shooting. The one miss, she got her own rebound and scored right away in the mid-range. She got a steal on Tamika Catchings, and they just couldn't keep track of her in the first quarter. I had mentioned that the one miss where she was able to score off her own offensive rebound. She got another wide-open jumper as a trailer in transition. Uh, she hit a wide-open three as a pick-and-pop player. So, you know, they just they couldn't keep track of her. And this was the best defense in the league. Yeah, you know, I, the best defense in the league, and that's – it kind of goes back to what I was saying. Like, it's not the, – the, the job isn't done when you get the ball out of Tarazi's hands, especially on this squad, because you have Cappy Pondexter, Penny Taylor, a young Dewana Bonner. It, it just felt like, to me, this Phoenix team just had so many offensive weapons. It's maybe one of the best individual collections of offensive talent I've ever seen, just as far as personnel is concerned. Like, it, I, know you, I know we said Penny Taylor, she, she was coming off an ankle injury, although – you couldn't tell in this game. She was, she was amazing. But when you have the luxury of bringing a player like that off the bench, you're going to be able to, to do some things offensively that teams just cannot defend, especially when it's time to bring in their own bench players. Yeah, and you mentioned it. She finished with 23 points on 14 shooting possessions, and she was really doing it in, in every way imaginable. You know, she, she hit a few threes. She was attacking in the pick and roll. She just attacked the basket, attacked right hand, attacked left hand. 18 points in the first half. You know, she was scoring on early duckins in the post. Indiana would try to press and trap in the full court and force some pressure. But Phoenix was just able to advance the ball really easily oftentimes. And it really just led to a lot of open court situations. And, and Taylor was able to take advantage of this as well. And one play in particular, you know, there's about 90 seconds into the second quarter. She, she gets an outlet pass. There's a three-on-three situation. She gets a screen from Willingham and, and gets an easy blow by against Tammy Sutton Brown. And I thought Willingham, you know, she had... I think it was three points on four shooting possessions. But I thought she had a really great game as an on-ball screener and really helped uh, Penny Taylor and Cappy Pondexter in particular get advantage situations against uh, the bigs of Indiana that we talked about before. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up Willico Willingham because she was never a, a high-profile player. But on any team where you're depending on a lot of ball screens and somebody who can make a lot of – do a lot of the dirty work, so to speak, in the front court – you need to have a player like that on your team, especially when you have all this offensive talent that, you know, if, if, you, if you give them a ball screen, they can just go and, and create something out of, out of nothing. And Willingham was that player for this 2009 Mercury squad. Again, like I said, she was never a high profile player or much of a scorer or anything like that. She didn't put up the gaudy numbers, but 
as you said, she did make an impact in this game just by her screening ability. And you don't play for 10 years in this league as a post player if you're not able to do that. So watching this game, uh, watching a younger Lico Willingham work, I am, I'm much more convinced of her, of her career effectiveness now. You mentioned Dewana Bonner in pin down screen action. This is very interesting to me because once again, as uh, avid watchers of the modern WNBA, we're used to seeing Dewana Bonner play a high volume role where she has the ball in her hands a lot, playing both three or the four position as more of an offensive threat. This was her rookie season. She won the first, as you said, of her three career Six Women of the Year awards. And watching this game, I could sure see why. Now, Stephen, as someone who's watched Dewana Bonner a lot over the past couple seasons in Phoenix, as that player who can kind of carry you for some stretches, what struck you about her game back in 2009? Well, the thing that stuck out to me the most is probably that she just wasn't used as a perimeter option really at all. You know, she was used more as a screener, uh, a roller to the basket, was a force on the offensive glass, had four offensive rebounds in this game, had over a 10% offensive rebound rate for the season, you know, her only season above 10%. And it kind of dropped precipitously after her sophomore season kind of altogether. But, you know, she was just a very willing and effective screener on and off the ball, used more as just a high energy bench player, you know, very effective as she is now using her length and athleticism defensively. And I thought she had a nice game as a defensive playmaker playing primarily the power forward. I would say that was uh, a surprising aspect to going back and watching this as well, like that she really wasn't used as a three, you know, as slight as she is and as a rookie that she was primarily playing the power forward position, but got a couple blocks, had a huge steal late in regulation against Katie Douglas as Douglas was trying to like gnash under the basket and find an open teammate. She just kind of went up and got it out of her hands. You know, Bonner immediately made an impact, had five points and a block in her four minutes off the bench in the first quarter. So her presence was known, you know, she kind of still had her wind and energy to her late in regulation and late in the overtime as Indiana's bigs who played a ton of minutes in this game. You know, Bonner was at 25 minutes as opposed to the 38 minutes from the two starting Indiana bigs. Bonner was able to just continue to leak out for some easy transition opportunities and really kind of maintain her energy a little bit later into the game. So just kind of her overall style of play, you know, I don't think she took a single three in this game and was really, like I said, kind of used more as a roller to the basket and, and everything was pretty much close to the goal in terms of her field goal attempts. That's very interesting to me. It, it really speaks to her game and, and the evolution of her game that she was able to kind of come into the league and be this energy roller, primarily a power forward screener, you know, even though there's not much of her there to screen, uh, she was effective at doing it. And she's really been able to kind of turn her game on its head and turn herself into a more perimeter oriented, high volume scorer. So all the props to Dewana Bonner in this. I mean, I think she has one of the most interesting career arcs among WNBA stars currently playing. Now, there was a fellow 2009 draftee playing, rookie Breon January, point guard for the uh, Indiana Fever. She played 27 minutes, a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, 11 points, seven assists in those 27 minutes. I think she was fairly effective. What did you think of January's game? I think a mixed bag tells the story pretty well. She had some really impressive moments for a rookie point guard. You know, she drew a tough charge late in regulation on Dewana Bonner, immediately followed that up with a beautiful right-to-left spinning layup on Tamika Johnson, had some really nice passes. I feel like every time I go back and watch a Breon January fever game, she makes like a pass or two that makes me think that she was just underutilized in her two Phoenix seasons, you know, kind of relegated as a spot-up shooter. You know, she, as you mentioned in our, our previous episode, 
maybe never kind of the pick and roll maestro. You know, I thought she was a little undersized, of course, for some of Phoenix's bigger perimeter options. You know, she wasn't really as good at fighting through screens, I think, as she developed to be later in her career. But, you know, she closed the game for them and had some some good moments. You know, ended with seven assists and four turnovers. And I think she threw a not super amazing entry pass that perhaps played some part in catchings picking up her fifth fall. You know, late in regulation, that kind of uh, really was a, a big play that would, you know, play a lot later in the game when catchings would fall out in overtime. So uh, a mixed bag, but overall it was okay. She was probably a better option than Tully Bevilacqua in that moment. So any other thoughts on, on January's game? Well, I mean, Tully scored 14 points, but picked up five fouls as well. I think, and they said on the broadcast, like Tully was never known as much of a scorer. And the one thing that I was surprised at, January missed several wide open three-pointers that I am not used to seeing her miss. But the tenacity, trademark beyond January. The defense, you know, you mentioned it. She's, she was probably not as, as good at getting through screens or as defending ball screen action as she is these days. But it was very easy to see in this game how, how high the Indiana Fever were on her and how she was going to factor into their future plans. Yeah, and you mentioned the five fouls for Tully Bevilacqua. A lot of Indiana's starting players were in foul trouble. Tully, you mentioned catchings, as I just mentioned, fouled out. Tammy Sutton Brown also had five fouls. And the difference in, in free throw attempts were immense. And I think that was really a big difference maker in the game. You know, Phoenix got to the line 38 times compared to Indiana's 19. And, and I did think um, overall, Indiana kind of got a little bit of a, a tough whistle, particularly on a couple of those catchings fouls. You know, she was called for a blocking foul when Diana Trossi maybe extended her forearm a little bit. Uh, she got called for that uh, aforementioned fall on the Brian January entry pass when she was trying to seal off Diana Taurasi near the basket. The sixth foul when she got called on, on Taurasi's offensive rebound, I think that probably was a good call. But, you know, overall, I thought Indiana maybe got a little bit of a tough whistle. Yeah, I agree with you on that, especially for a team that wants to play physically on defense. And when your best player is Tamika Catchings, you know, that's but that's, that speaks to who Tamika Catchings is. She's never going to play soft. She's never going to give up on a play because she's in foul trouble. And that's, that's the way it goes. I, I definitely agree that the, uh, the foul called on catchings when Tarazi extended her, her forearm was a bit questionable. But in the flow of the game, I mean, Tarazi was in foul trouble herself. And when a game goes to overtime, you are going to end up having people in foul trouble, whether you like it or not. So let's, let's kind of break down how the, how the flow of the game ended in this overtime finish. Yeah, sure. And just before we get to kind of the specifics of the end of the game, I, I do want to say that I did like that both coaches were willing to play their players in foul trouble. You had mentioned DT had five um, catchings played with five for the overtime, but also played with four uh, in the third quarter as well. So I liked the, the kind of go for our attitude that both coaches displayed, but moving on to sort of the end of the game. Yeah. So Phoenix was down with about 540 left in the game. And, and this is where Cappy Pondexter subbed out. Should, should we kind of go through it first, or do you want to talk about Cappy now? We could talk about Cappy now. I mean, uh, her role on this team was certainly different than I feel like what I expected. This was obviously Cappy Pondexter in her athletic prime, but it wasn't Cappy Pondexter as the alpha dog scorer as we came to know her in her days in New York. To be honest with you, looking at this, this shot distribution, I'm pretty impressed by uh, the Mercury, how they were able to get this, this shot distribution. You know, Tarazi took 17 shots. Cappy, 14 shots, Bonner, nine, Penny Taylor, 10. That's 
a pretty good job of distributing your field goal attempts among plenty of players who are, are more than capable of, of putting up, you know, 20 shots in a game, right? But Cappy, I think, had an interesting game because she really wasn't much of a factor for, like, the first three quarters. And you had mentioned Pondexter's role a little bit on this team, and Diana Charlesy ends up winning the MVP of this finals, but in the final stretch of game five, when, when everything's kind of up in the air and you're not sure who's going to walk away with this title, it was Cappy Pondexter who was kind of had the ball in her hand and was making the big shots, which was pretty surprising to me to go back and watch. But in this one, I think it was a little bit more of a feel-out game. You know, two points in the first half, three fouls in the first half, a rough defensive game, I think. You know, all of Phoenix had a rough defensive game. They're a rough defensive team, but uh, had a size disadvantage, obviously, uh, on Katie Douglas, but also I thought was just pretty inattentive at times. And before she hit two free throws right at the end of regulation, she was subbed out, as I mentioned before, with 5.40 left in the game, and we didn't see her again until 15 seconds left in the game when she is pretty much followed right away, six two free throws. But let's kind of take a step back and talk about sort of what happened before that. Very interesting development for sure. Now, this is, this is kind of one thing that I wanted to touch on. Tamika Johnson played 29 minutes at point guard. She was three for three from three-point range, and she did hit a very big three-pointer uh, to put Phoenix up late in the fourth quarter. I'm kind of wondering... Looking at era, looking at differences between eras, would this minutes distribution have been the same among Phoenix's guards today? Yeah, I thought Tamika Johnson was okay. Not really someone who got guarded. I thought a, a whole bunch behind the line did make her three threes, which helps when you take them, but probably in there for her defense a little bit more. And I think more than that, when Cappy subbed out with about 540 remaining in the fourth quarter, you know, Phoenix was down six. They go on a nice run. Penny Taylor you know, kind of picks up where she left off in the first half, was pretty quiet in between sort of the end of the first half and this sort of late stretch in the fourth quarter. But yeah, I think Johnson was was kind of more in their guess for her defense. But, you know, if I'm Corey Gaines and you have this roster, I'm not sure I'm making any substitutions based on defense. But then again, you know, <laughs> I think uh, Nicole Oldie was playing largely for her defense as well. And I thought she kind of did a little bit better of a job just not getting completely put into the goal by Indiana's bigs as, you know, Willingham and Smith were. That's a good point. You know, it it seemed like as this game wore on, Indiana was having a tougher and tougher time really taking advantage of that. You know, there were times when uh, Diana Tarazi would get put on Ebony Hoffman and that was an easy bucket for Hoffman, but Oldie did bring that uh, toughness in the post. I mean, she was, Wow, she was plus 24 in 19 minutes. That really says a lot, um, especially when Tangela Smith was minus 20 in 26 minutes. That's a pretty stark difference there. So it obviously worked out. Defense for this Mercury squad is hard to come by. And regarding Tamika Johnson, I mean, how often is it that you say, yeah, we're going to put in a player who's five foot three for defensive purposes? That's interesting. But how about Katie Douglas? I mean, she played 40 minutes uh, after suffering what appeared to be like an ankle injury early in the game. She was very big for the fever down the stretch in the fourth quarter and overtime. She's one of those players who she's one of those players you look back upon. And I feel like you got to watch her play to remember how good she really was because she was never the true alpha dog on any one team. But looking back at this game, I mean, she scored a smooth 30 points. It was a smooth 30 points. And I kind of characterized it in our notes as a little bit of a quiet 30 points. You know, she had 11 points in about the last five minutes and, you know, 15 seconds of the game, including a huge shot to bring this game to overtime, but was kind of just feeling her way through the first few quarters, you know, hit some big threes, um, got to the mid range a little bit. And that ankle injury, when I saw that, it looked pretty bad, but was able to still play 40 minutes and just took over the end of this game. So 
I mean, let's just talk about that that shot for uh, a second to to bring it into overtime. Yeah. So let, first, let's break down the situation, right? Phoenix is shooting free throws. You can hear Corey Gaines over the, on the broadcast saying, switch everything, switch everything. Indiana gets the ball back, and uh, they did not switch everything. Yeah, so Cappy Pondexter is brought back into the game, fouled right away, gets to the free throw line for two free throws, makes them both. And then, as you mentioned, you can hear Gaines say, switch everything, switch everything, press and switch everything, which I think is kind of their first mistake, right? They, they press, which really opened up the floor to kind of have Indiana dictate which players they want where. So it's pretty much just Katie Douglas and her defender, Penny Taylor, and Tammy Sutton Brown and her defender, Oldie. And Douglas gets the outlet up the floor, receives a screen from Sutton Brown. They don't switch. Oldie drops back. Taylor is caught behind the screen and Douglas just splashes it. Like I'm, I'm not sure the net even moved. It was as pure of a jump shot as you'll ever see. That ties the game. Still about seven seconds left. Dewana Bonner goes end to end, gets right to the rim, goes left over Tammy Sutton Brown, tries to finish with the right hand on the left side of the basket. Doesn't get it to fall, but Cappy Pondexter, newly in the game, gets about as clean of a look as you'll ever get and a tip in, but back irons it and we're going to overtime. Yeah, it was really a wild sequence. I was really shocked to see the Mercury not switch uh, on Katie Douglas shooting the three. I mean, you know they need a three-pointer there, and you know that Katie Douglas is a three-point, is a pretty good three-point shooter. But I did think, like, to Indiana's credit, I did think it was one of those very high IQ plays by Tammy Sutton Brown. I mean, she she made no hesitation in setting that screen. Yeah, it was a great screen and a great shot, and a mental error by Oldie to to not switch there. Yeah, and uh, for those of you uh, who weren't familiar with the Phoenix Mercury during this time, transition defense I don't think was ever their uh, ever their strength. But yeah, that one was, that one hurt. But anyway, the game's going to overtime, and it was characterized by a pretty impressive duel between Katie Douglas and Cappy Pondexter. Yeah, both players really balled out, and Cappy Pondexter, you know, this was really her time to shine. She had seven points in the overtime and was just carving up Indiana in the pick and roll, you know, was able to really get downhill. And Indiana's bigs, as dominant as they were on the offensive end, as we mentioned, they just could not hang with Phoenix's backcourt combination. Yeah, you, you talked about it earlier a little bit. Indiana's bigs were fatigued. I think it was, I think it was pretty obvious. Carolyn Peck, who was commentating the game, she said, yeah, Tammy Sutton-Brown looks gassed. Ebony Hoffman looks gassed. And I think you could kind of see as the game went on, like when Indiana, the effectiveness of their front court just kind of dropped and dropped and dropped. And then towards the end of the game or in overtime, when they were giving all these high ball screens to Cappy Pondexter, she got wherever she wanted to. And she was kind of fresh because of that interesting substitution in the fourth quarter there. But I mean, it ended up working out for them because she could not be guarded with the ball in her hands. Yeah, she was getting anywhere she wanted to. And besides from just being such an amazing tough shot maker, you know, she just had such a smoothness to her, uh, her ability to go with either hand. And you know, the, the Cappy, Tarasi, Penny Taylor combination is such an amazing offensive combination because all three could break you down off the dribble going either way, and all three were respected floor spacers. You wanted to continue to guard them behind the three-point line, and all of them were three-level scorers as well. Could do it in the mid-range, could do it from behind the line, could get all the way to the rim. Taylor may be a little bit more physical, of course, uh, than Cappy, and, you know, Tarasi could just do it all, obviously was the MVP this year. But what a combination of perimeter players. And when all three of them were on in the, in the game, they were just unstoppable. Yeah, like I said before, it's, it's really difficult, even if you are the best defense in the league. I mean, you got to give up something, especially when the game goes to overtime. One of these players has to catch fire. 
especially when your defense is, you know, kind of fatigued and your front court is fatigued and what have you. It's really no surprise looking at this, just, just looking at this roster to see why the Mercury had such a, such an amazing offense in this season. I mean, what, what do you give up to this lineup? If you've got Tarazi and Taylor and Cappy Pondexter in there all at the same time, how do you, how do you possibly defend that? Well, you give up 120 points in 45 yeah, minutes. You don't, right? That's yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let, let's maybe talk about Katie Douglas a little bit more. I feel like we maybe got, gave her a little bit of short shrift and she was uh, incredible in, in overtime, you know, did miss her last two shots, both of which, you know, were an opportunity to take the lead. But this was also without Tamika Catchings in the game, she had already fouled out and, you know, Katie Douglas was keeping the minute for, for overtime. Uh, as we mentioned, eight of her 30 points in overtime did hit a nice step back uh, on a Nicole Oldie switch to take the lead 116, 115. And that would be the last time that Indiana scored. But I mean, Katie Douglas, a great game. You're absolutely right on that. And uh, to Douglas's credit, you're right. I mean, catching's fouled out. And that is a significant part of, even though she struggled offensively, I mean, it doesn't really matter. You're, you're in overtime. You're still going to check catching's pretty heavily on offense. And uh, with her fouled out, it fell on Katie Douglas's shoulders. She did get those, even those misses at the end, I thought were good looks. And they wouldn't really have a chance in overtime if it weren't for Katie Douglas. So, I mean, definitely one of the, the best performances I've ever seen from her. You know, I was, again, I was used to watching her towards the tail end of her career when she was struggling with back issues and, and during her second stint in Connecticut and what have you. But yeah, she was, she was really something else in this game. And it was, I don't know, Stephen, it was a real treat to watch these players who I kind of, I was used to seeing during their, the tail ends of their careers, really battle at in their primes this game in particular uh, I watched a couple other games from this series and I mean this one was so much fun you know obviously we didn't get the the showdown you would want to between the true kind of franchise players between Tarasi and Tamika Catchings but you know Tarasi definitely had her moments offensively hit hit some really tough pull-up shots uh, was able to get to the free throw line you know Catchings just all over the place defensively making plays and then you know just watching Penny Taylor work was just incredible she was so strong getting to the basket was hitting her jump shots. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. I recommend anyone who listens to the show to definitely go back and watch this game. 10 out of 10, highly recommended if you could find it. Um, it is easy to find, so just just look for it. Um, but you, to your point about we didn't get the, the duel between these two franchise players we, we expected, in my opinion, that's actually pretty cool because this was still a very fast-paced, obviously very high-scoring game, and it really speaks to the talent on both of these teams if catchings had a true catchings game or if Chirazi was on, maybe we don't get the battle between the offensive minded Indiana uh, front court versus, you know, Penny Taylor being forced to kind of take over on that second unit. It just speaks to the talent and the depth on both of these teams. And this is at a time I think when, cause right now I believe that the WNBA is kind of in a problem where they're drafting talent faster than they can develop it. And, you know, the, the, the league just gets so much more talented every year. This was 10 years ago. And you can tell just by watching this game, these were the two best teams in the league, two totally different polar opposite mentalities. And just, we got an amazing game in this game one WNBA finals. It was a real treat to watch. Yeah. And one more thing I'll say just kind of about the viewing experience. It was awesome. How much of the actual like X's and O's you could hear yes. from the coaches on the sideline ESPN was and, and the league as well, obviously was kind of providing so much insight in terms of like specific plays that they were running on, on baseline out of bounds or sideline out of bounds you know, matchup problems that, that they wanted or matchups that they wanted to dictate. We mentioned before Corey Gaines talking about, you know, switch everything, uh, press. We saw a couple 
plays getting drawn up. So, I mean, just awesome insight. And I, I wish we kind of got more of that rather than just sort of the wired for sound rah-rah stuff that you'll get on a lot of games now. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the locker room speeches were not particularly uh, informative. But yes, you know, when they're in timeouts and, and just getting those, those little glimpses of information, it almost struck me as kind of what they do for the All-Star games where the coaches, you know, talk about here's what we're drawing up, here's what we're going to go with except the stakes were obviously a billion times higher than in the All-Star game. So the presentation was actually really cool. It was a nice change of pace from what we're used to watching the WNBA Finals. In fact, I would take some of this over what we get nowadays because the engagement, it was so engaging. You know, we're not used to getting that kind of insight into, what, into, the, into the coaches' huddles or into the X's and O's. You could, see their, you could see their whiteboards. It was really cool to see just the best in the world. When you think about the best in the world, these players are the best in the world, but these coaches are also pretty darn good too. So yeah, overall, it was just an amazing game to watch, to re relive, going back to the 2009 era, what's different, what's the same, just a real treat. Yeah, and I, I really had fun doing this, so I hope our listeners enjoyed this kind of content. Definitely something I would be interested in continuing to do every now and then, you know, watch a, an older game, break down some of our takeaways, talk about some some players who are maybe no longer in their prime or, you know, were, were superstar players and maybe now out of the league. So uh, let us know if this is something that you enjoy. Yeah, I, I totally second that. Given that we aren't really, don't really have any games, current games to break down at the moment, um, of course, it remains to be seen what's what's going on with that. I would love, I would absolutely love to break down some more classic games and, and, and watch. So if you listeners out there, if you have any feedback, if you have any suggestions, suggestions are extremely welcome here. Steven, any parting thoughts? No, sign us off. So as always, I'm Eric Nemchak for Steven Trinkwald. We're signing off here at the Double Down WNBA. You can find us on Apple Podcasts as well as Google Play. If you deem us worthy, please subscribe, rate five stars, leave a comment, leave a review. Engagement on Twitter is also welcome. And uh, we are going to be diversifying our content a little in the coming weeks. Would you like to give a little bit of a teaser for what listeners can expect? Sure. Sometime after you hear this episode, we will be uh, releasing a redraft of the 2014 WNBA draft. Uh, we thought this would be an interesting one because going through it, I think the top of the draft would look a little bit different now as it did then. I would say it looked it would look a lot different now than it did then. So that's an exercise we're really looking forward to. We hope you enjoy it as well. But for now, thank you so much for listening again. Eric Namchak for Stephen Trinkwald signing off. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening.